Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, May 23rd, and for this Media Monday, John Kelly and I are talking about Kevin Mayer and Tom Stagg's $100 million purchase of the media company Attention. We'll talk about why and what it means for the future of digital video. And we'll chat about how the press has been covering Elon Musk as the billionaire continues his hostile negotiation with Twitter. We'll hear about all that and more, plus Puck's new signature cocktail on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Monday, everybody. We're in the home stretch until summer, and I'm joined today by my boss, John Kelly, for a little uh, bit we like to call Media Monday, where we talk about all things media, which basically means everything. John, do you have any big summer plans coming up, or are you just just steering the puck ship into the horizon? You know, there's some travel here and there. There's definitely uh, a lot of puck work. I have a very big birthday, momentous birthday coming up in June. I have the same birthday as... uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. So those of you who want to go to Wikipedia and check that out, you can direct the presence to me at Puck's new office. That's the other big news. We're uh, on June 1st. We're going to be moving into our new official professional adult office in Chelsea, saying goodbye to the beautiful studio apartment that we've called home for the last year on Bank Street. But I think everyone is uh, excited and happy to to move on up. If we open an LA office, I humbly offer my my home here in Venice, for the Venice office. <laughs> I want to start with some news that popped uh, last week. And this might, this kind of thing might not be on totally on the radar of Media Monday aficionados. It's not like CNN, New York Times, but um, Kevin We're Mayer, more than just CNN and the New York Times, Peter. We can, we can be more than that. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, I just want to, you know, I don't know the total demo of our audience, but we're about to talk about a brand, an organization called Attention, A-T-T-N. Uh, Attention is a media company that makes, you know, feel good viral videos, um, you know, socially progressive. They've been around for five or six years, I think. Uh, Anyway, they were acquired by former ByteDance CEO, Kevin Mayer, and and his firm last week for $100 million. Uh, This is one of many acquisitions that, that Mayer and his team have made in the last year. What happened here? Like, why is attention and appealing acquisition for someone like Kevin Mayer? And also just take a step back, like, why do we care about Kevin Mayer? This is an interesting one in our world. And and we'll now do our favorite part of the show, which is disclosure time. Um, Attention raised about 30-something million dollars. Uh, I think both rounds were led by Evolution Media, which is a uh, subsidiary of TPG, which is an investor in Puck. No one really cares about this, but I'm just saying it anyway, because we're, we're journalists. Uh, <laughs> so Kevin Mayer and Tom Staggs, his partner at Candle, were both era parents who weren't at Disney for a long time. Staggs first was a, the longtime CFO under Iger, and he was in a bake-off, and Iger had this historic run. I think if there was any knock against the guy, it's that he didn't find a uh, successor that he was pleased with for a long time. And, and if you believe what the kids say, he's, he's nary too pleased with the one that he got in Bob Chapek. But Staggs left a number of years ago. Mayer was then repositioned, uh, you know, to be to be the next heir apparent. He was in charge of the Disney Plus business. It didn't work out for him. I, I think they mutually parted ways. And so here are Mayer and Staggs, two total corporate MBA types who have gotten 
significant financing in the billions from Blackstone, the private equity colossus. And they are embarking on a plan, have been for six or nine months, pretty publicly to go around Hollywood, rolling up production companies into one asset that they will then at some point take public. They pay like $3 billion for Moonbug, which is the company behind Coco Melon, which if you live in my house is like, you know, must-see TV morning, noon, and night. You can see how these companies get so phenomenally wealthy. They've also missed on things. It's been quite public. Stags and Mayer were not content guys at Disney. They were operators. So I, I think that there's been a little bit of shed and fraud around the town that these are the sort of, you know, bean counters on the loose, rolling up assets, and that they're trying to convince people that they can monetize their production businesses in a more significant way than they could on their own. Mm -hmm. They're now doing this in a market that looks very different than the one they embarked in. Anyway, long story short, now they're buying attention for between 100 and 150 million in cash, according to reports I've seen in Axios and Variety. And I think the thesis here is that attention started as a brand, but they're now a, a production company. They made the pivot that Vice did, where they went from mm -hmm. being solely exclusively focused on the brand to being focused on how do we make content for Fortune 500 companies. And they make a lot of stuff. T-Mobile, Clorox, Target, Beats. They did that, that great Dak Prescott ad for Beats. So I think if you're Mayor and Stags, you're figuring out how do you roll up all these massive production entities into one thing. And attention may be a little bit of millennial street cred, and it may also be some of the like technical back end that you need to, to put this all together. Wait, so the thinking here is like, if you are Ford or Amazon or Mattel, you come to Mayor and Skaggs' company and because they have all of this creative talent in their funnel, like they can just make sponsored content or advertising. And they also have know-how in terms of how to like distribute it and reach audiences, right? Yeah, I, I think that there's, there's probably two things happening here. One is that if you're an elite creator or if you're a Fortune 500 company, this candle media can probably serve both of your needs. You can probably be competing to make uh, a show that's co-branded on ESPN Plus, or you can make a series that will sell to Netflix. And, and that gives them different revenue streams. Although to be honest, like I'm not inside their minds or their deck. From the outside where these guys do get criticized is it looks sloppy at times. It looks like they are just buying high dollar worth production companies that there isn't entirely a strategy. The thing that is most interesting to me is I'm a big believer that the consolidation that we saw in streaming, like at the top, top, top of media world, like for, for you know, all the hardcore media money listeners who, who love Zaslav and, and Zucker stories, you know, <laughs> the, the, the forces that led us to Warner Brothers Discovery are coming down the pipe. And, you know, the next stop is at the production company level, which is where Mayer and Stags are operating on. And I'm sure more than anything, having, you know, been in rooms with, with you know, elite private equity thinkers, they're very focused on the model here, and they're very focused on, on the makeup and, and the management team that's running it. And I'm sure they believe that rolling up these creative assets into one unique platform will give them buying and bargaining power in the two-way marketplace of the talent on one side and then the streamers on the other side. And they'll have the residual rights that will create long-term value. So that roll-up strategy is coming down the pike. I don't think there's a part of media it's not going to come for at some point now that the scale is so, so big. I have a thought bubble. Do you want to 
see it, hear it? It just came to me. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the heralded pivot to video that so many journalists shit on all the time, this pivot, I think was 2015 through 2017. So like basically Facebook incentivized creating videos, original videos, and over like text or pictures or whatever. And so every media organization, news organization, content hub, whatever, pivoted to video so that they could monetize, basically. And I say a lot of journalists shit on it because it meant that a lot of media companies over-torqued on creating video and it didn't work, or they ended up laying off regular print journalists or quote-unquote print journalists because of it. My take on that was always like pivoting to video. If it failed, it's because your video sucked. (laughs) There's a lot of people who thought you could just take video from TV, clip it, put it on the internet, and like that's pivoting to video. And so, you know, we think about this at Snapchat. Video for mobile, video for social is just like a a different enterprise than video for television or video for the big screen. And so that's a long way of saying the guys at attention. I had dinner with Matthew Siegel in LA, like nice guy. Like I feel like they made a bet. I feel like Group 9 was like this before they got acquired Mm -hmm. by Vox. Like, we're going to figure out a way to make good distributed video content that reaches people and gets eyeballs and can make money. And, you know, props to these guys for selling now. Like, they made a play. They invested in it. They created video apparently successful enough to be acquired six years down the road by this big company. And the winners and losers of the pivot to video are, are becoming apparent. You know, like, BuzzFeed did pivots to video and it just meant they did like a streaming show that no one ended up watching on Twitter um, because that was something that had no audience. Whereas, you know, the short form now this style video, as much as like elites don't watch it, but like if you live in, you know, Ohio and you like watching videos about people from the military coming home or like cat videos or just like whatever, there's an audience in a market for that that is sort of outside the field of view of elite media people. And so attention pivoted to video and made a lot of money from it because they made good video. <laughs> and yeah. I, I think that's important. Yeah, you're, you're right. It's funny. Your, your point about uh, elite audience is completely true. I'm thinking about your conversation last week with Dylan. The non-elites could laugh at the elites that they still watch Meet the Press. You know, that that's their idea of video. But you're you're right that in aggregate, video dominates the internet. When you think about the size of, of YouTube and, and Snap, it, it, it's absolutely extraordinary. And, and the small pivot yeah. that uh, attention made was that it, it, it expanded its horizons to being focused on producing for other providers too. And you got to be willing to pivot. All right, John, we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, I want to ask you about Elon Musk and not just the news of, about Elon Musk, but how the media is covering Elon Musk. We'll be right back. Okay, so John, last Thursday, I believe, Insider published a story about Elon Musk. And the headline um, is typically long for Insider, so I'll read it to you. A SpaceX flight attendant said Elon Musk exposed himself and propositioned her for sex, documents show. The company paid $250,000 for her silence, and the article basically said that Musk exposed himself when he wanted a massage, and he and the company made this claim go away. The Business Insider story uh, is mostly funneled through a friend of this person who apparently got the settlement. Hasn't been confirmed elsewhere. I will say like the details are oddly specific for it not to be true. But what do you make of this story in the context of the last month? Like how 
Elon Musk raised his hand one day and said, I want to buy Twitter and the stock price is down. It feels like a hostile negotiation where he might walk away. The share price is down. But also like Elon Musk is still remains relatively popular with the public, the American public. And, you know, even Teddy Schleifer and I talked about this on one of our podcasts, like even a year and a half ago, two years ago, like he was pretty well received on the left and the right. And and in the last year or so, as he's become more outspoken about free speech and he's appeared on Joe Rogan and he's criticized Joe Biden, it feels like the tenor of the coverage is just extremely hostile to Elon Musk. And I don't know if you agree with that or not, or if I just like, if this take is coming out of nowhere. I agree with you. I, I think we're, I was imagining what you would call a kind of hostile untakeover, which I feel like is yeah. <laughs> sort of what we're observing right now. But this article was interesting. It, it didn't actually have the kind of cultural impression that I, I would have imagined that um, it would when I first saw it. Of note to me is that Rich McHugh, who wrote it, is a former TV producer. He was Ronan Farrow's producer. He's considered a journalist that knows how to work with victims. And one reason this story has not been, it was picked up by the Times, but it it is not earth-shattering Me Too news the way that two or three years ago, Matt Lauer or Harvey Weinstein were just like, stop what you're doing. The world is over. These these people's professional lives and personal lives are, Mm -hmm. are over. This didn't quite do that. I think in part because of the unusual reporting methods. Uh, I'm not saying that I disagree with them. I'm just saying that it was told through a friend. It's not as straightforward. Um, Musk's response was unusual. He said something to the effect of, if I had ever done anything like this in my 30-year career, he would have known about it before, which I guess is is just how he talks, but it's not as concise as, no, this is totally ridiculous, uh, which I think is was what he was trying to say, but he said it in a different way. But I don't Um, know that we wouldn't have known about it before. I mean, like, like people sign pretty strict NDAs, especially at, at companies like SpaceX. Right. Who knows with all of it? But it didn't. It didn't seem like it was a personal or or business crusher. And I don't think it's yeah. going to have any impact on the the Twitter deal. Although I will say this, I want to I want to amend one thing I said last week because I know that we have such a loyal, patriotic Media Monday audience. <laughs> I um I was yammering to you about how I thought that Musk was going to have a hard time re- recruiting elite talent, and I think that this BI story actually you know furthers that thesis. But I was talking to a very in-the-know, uh, high-level business person, and I, I posited that point, and they sort of cut me off right in the past and said, no, I don't think that's true. I think that there's there's a level of acolytes that would do anything to have a chance to, to work underneath him, and mm-hmm. he'll have absolutely no difficulty filling the, the top ranks of that company in no time. Peter, what do you think? I mean, we, we both lived through like that two- or three-month period when Me Too was... Um, was just taking out people left and right. Did you feel sort of those kinds of reverberations when you read the the BI story or the insider story, I should say? No, for reasons you articulated and also in terms of impact, like it just doesn't, it just doesn't seem like the world isn't shocked, one, at the idea of Elon Musk doing something <laughs> like this. Two, he now currently, and this is sort of what I was getting at earlier when I talked about the tenor of the coverage, like he exists on the right side of the politically correct wars. And so like he's right. he's like not in polite society enough to be canceled and removed from society, I guess is what I'm saying. It's not like his wealth livelihood. I mean, he's the world's richest man is like like unless he like fundamentally 
broke the law and gets prosecuted. Like this can't like impact his standing in the world. The other thing I thought of related to Insider was they did two stories about Dave Portnoy, the founder and CEO of Barstool Sports late last year, I think, uh, basically revealing the fact that he, as a single man, likes younger women and would, because of his fame, and Dave Portnoy is very famous, especially on the internet and social media, especially sure. among college-age And very, very, people. yeah, very famous. Business Insider wrote back-to-back articles, basically, you know, either blind quoting women who said they had like a bad date, a bad sexual experience with Dave, nothing illegal, uh, nothing necessarily abusive. A lot of women possibly in hindsight saying, man, I wish I hadn't done that or the sex was kind of icky. But it felt like they were going after Portnoy and, and he certainly believes this because mm-hmm. he they don't like him or his politics or his worldview or his sort of like cultural status. And no one else confirmed that story. No one else bothered to write it. That's always a good tell as if another newsroom, like this happened during the Trump years, there were innumerable stories about Trump. The Wall Street Journal, I think Reuters published a couple that were never confirmed. And so if mm-hmm. another like serious newsroom doesn't confirm your reporting or doesn't bother with right. it, that to me suggests like there's not a lot of there there. And so Portnoy's take is they are making a decision to come after me because their readership doesn't agree with me and doesn't like me. And they can go viral if they write this story about me. Again, I do think the Elon thing is different. The details are oddly specific here, but Portnoy and Elon are sort of in the same cohort. I feel like they are this like center-right, libertarian, free speech kind of bros who don't care if they get canceled. And they are rich and powerful enough to avoid it even if someone attempted to. And that's that's one reason also that I don't know how much impact this will have. One interesting detail that your uh, anecdote reminds me of is that Portnoy sued Insider over the uh, the sexual misconduct allegations. And I'm certainly unaware of any legal action that Elon Musk has taken. The fact that he commented in the story and then did not comment, it's impossible to know if lawyers got involved. But I wonder if he does believe that Twitter should be this bastion for uh, unmitigated free speech I wonder how he feels about it when his character is uh, is being assaulted in the in the town square, so to speak. You'd you'd imagine that someone with his ideology would say these people are entitled to write whatever they want under the First Amendment. I also wonder, though, as a, a seemingly sort of thin-skinned hyper billionaire, that he might not always believe that the rules apply to him too. But I guess we'll we'll find uh, that you out. You think? <laughs> <laughs> um. All right, I want to leave you with one question. I saw on Instagram one night, one of our colleagues uh, was at the Waverly Inn, uh, a place you frequent. Uh, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a puck cocktail on the menu there. That's right, yeah. We were we were there together. Uh, that's Joe's Instagram. And we were there with a couple of people. Matt was in town. And yes, there is a puck cocktail at the Waverly. It is a gin drink. The ingredients of this drink are pretentious, but the, the drink itself is delicious. It's gin. I think it's aviation gin is the preference. Mm-hmm. Uh, chamomile, a chamomile tea concoction. Well, this is, you know, if you think that's pretentious. Then the third piece is <laughs> there's a little bit of sherry, uh, believe it or not. But the drink is delicious. I think Matt had one. I've had plenty. I'm going to miss that now that we're moving to Chelsea. But try the puck, everyone. And also, like, you know, respond to my Media Monday emails if you're on the puck distribution list. And I will personally give you the recipe for the puck myself. I love that. Uh, we got to find a good cocktail bar in Chelsea. I used to live there, but I don't have a lot of memory of where you go to get a good drink. Yeah, that's going to be the first order of business. <laughs> All right, man. Later. All right, man. Talk to you soon. 
Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.